Today's episode of Bags and Brisby is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. High in the air, Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 54 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. And episode 54, so that is the Sergio Romo podcast. But because we don't like to, you know, you can't make us abide by your rules, man. This is the Tim Lincecum podcast. We we could have waited an extra an extra episode to have episode fifty five be the Tim Lincecum podcast, but no no no. Let's just go right into it because uh, Andy, you wrote about Tim Lincecum being your favorite player to cover, and it was it was an excellent excellent article, and it brought back all sorts of feelings and emotions for the readers for me. And so why not just devote a whole danged episode to Tim Lincecum. Does that sound good to you? That sounds fine. However, even though Tim Lincecum was my favorite player to cover, for reasons we'll get into, my favorite entrance music of all time belongs to number 54, El Mechon, for Sergio Romo. So I wish we could overlay this entire episode with El Mechon on a loop. Can we do that? Will that be good? Or we might have some some usage issues, maybe. Copyright issues? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, maybe you just hum a few bars and we can loop that. That would be Uh, That is, that is, I mean, that is a a banger of a closer entrance song. That is when that, when that started playing, that got, that got the crowd going. I think it's, it's in the top tier. You've got what? Hell's Bells. That's as ominous as it gets. Uh, You've, you've got to enter Sandman. You know, I I think it's okay for, for Mariano Rivera. It's, it's a little too on the nose. Um, Yeah. Smoke on the Water. Yeah. Smoke on the Water is a good one for sure. Brilliant. Brilliant. But uh, yep. What was, what was Wagner's? Wagner's was also Enter Sandman, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I recall one time the Giants accidentally played it for uh, while he was warming up. And I'm like, wait, no, you, you, you don't get the memo. You're playing his entrance music on the road. That's not good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember when Romo first played it in the clubhouse. And he's like, this is what I'm going to come out to. And and all of us were like, just like really? That is awesome are you really gonna do that and there was this whole thought of uh he was just messing around you know Sergio likes to have fun you know uh but then he went out and and it was blaring through the ballpark and just I remember just laughing my butt off in the press box and and he kept he's kept it up everywhere he's gone so I love it I I, yeah I just I love that it just it just makes me happy makes me smile now uh Personally, I always, if I were to choose my closer entrance music, I've, I've always said this, I think I, the song 
changes, but it would be something like Starland Vocal Band, Afternoon Delight. <laughs> and then I would fire three fastballs over the catcher's head to the backstop and just pretend like, you know, like maybe twitch a little bit. I think that would be my, my act, my gimmick. Uh, do you have a closer entrance song picked out? Oh, you know, I, I've given this way too much thought, whether it's walk-up music or closer entrance songs, things that will never, ever come to pass in my life. I'm in my 40s now, and yet I still haven't given up on the idea that I'll have my Rowan Gartner moment and and, and be a big league talent. But uh, There's always um, the knuckleball. I, there's always the knuckleball, right? Uh, so I would either be uh, Super Rad by the Aquabats or... <laughs> Or Uncontrollable Urge by Devo. One of the two. Those are some deep okay. cuts, but those would be my choices. Those are those those are good. I think my, my honest answer would be uh, something from Caius, whether it's Thumb or Green Machine. But I think that would be my serious answer. I, I don't think I would have the courage to go through with Starland Vocal Band. I, I think I'm too much of a weenie. But, uh, wow, we, we are off track already. <laughs> so let's get it back <laughs> on track to talk about Tim Lincecum and let's just start with your article and explain why uh, he was your favorite player to cover. Yeah, so I guess this is one of the things that we're sort of doing to kind of, you know, have some some new content on the site and give people some happy memories to uh, during this tough time. Uh, and and one thing that Tim Kawakami asked me to write about was who was my favorite player to cover. And I thought, uh, I'm not sure I really want to do that. We're not supposed to have quote unquote favorites. Um, but I, I so I sort of framed it more along the lines of. Who have I most appreciated the opportunity to be able to cover and write about and witness on a daily basis? And I mean, we've been pretty lucky uh, to write about the team we've written about in this time and place. I mean, there's been a lot of of good choices. Um, And I think that just doing our our team of the decade stuff that we just did a couple months ago, uh, you know, reinforces that just how, how much we had to choose from. But, uh, you know, whether it's you know, Barry Bonds and the amazing things that he did, especially in 2004, the first season I covered him when he walked 230 times and still hit almost 50 homers. Um, <laughs> but but Lincecum was the guy that I think I had I, I most appreciated being able to write about because he was just awesome to watch and 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 to try to describe what he was doing out there as just a sensation on the field was was enough of a privilege and then to be able to kind of see his personality and know how complicated he was how much people identified with him how how he was uncomfortable in his own skin and was an introvert and yet you know he had to kind of put that aside and and go out there and compete and perform and he had to go through this career arc of where he was dominant and untouchable, and all of a sudden he wasn't, and he had to reinvent himself. And uh, I think all of that, uh, and, and plus the fact that he's just got a good heart, he's a good person. Um, I, I think that that just it's there's a reason fans connected to him, and I think there's a reason he was just always so so compelling uh, to write about, whether he was going great or he was just finding a way to scramble to compete. And so that's why Tim Linskim is my favorite player that I've gotten to cover. There's always the idea that if you're someone like a Mark McGuire or a Barry Bonds and you're just you're larger than life and you're you're also very large and, you know, you look like the sort of human being that can pick one of us normal people up and and kind of like snap into us like a Slim Jim. And that is compelling in its own way. That is like this guy is doing something that is just beyond my capacity to understand. But there's something about the guys like Lincecum who are 
you know, closer to the, the average height, the average American's height. They are maybe not as bulked up. Uh, with Lincecum, you had just this easy humanity that, that, that came with them with the long hair and, you know, he couldn't really grow a mustache and that was endearing. Uh, he, <laughs> but he tried. He, he, got, he tried. He got busted for pot. You know what I mean? Like there, there was just something about him that made him a little bit more of an everyman. And it was a little bit easier to say, yeah, that is, you know what, if I got bitten by a radioactive spider, like that's maybe what I could become. Like, so, you know, he's obviously... Uh, just a wildly athletic human being, and, and you can't take that away from him. He's not like you and I. He's a crazy good athlete. But just the look, the vibe, and, and he thought, yeah, there's. I could see myself playing FIFA on the couch with him, and of course that's going to appeal to people. It was just so darn relatable. It was, And you eat Lucky Charms for dinner, and yeah, absolutely. We've all been there. <laughs> I mean, he was the lovable slacker, and he was so perfect for San Francisco, just such a perfect match for for you know the time and place. And uh, I, I said in my article, I'm you know when when I'm done as a reporter and I can put objectivity aside, I'm gonna see if I can find a Let Timmy Smoke T-shirt and I'm gonna wear it to Trader Joe's probably every <laughs> like twice a week. Yeah, no, that's a class. I never even thought about one of those shirts because when I was doing my my TV show for NBC Sports Bay Area, one of my shticks is that I would have these increasingly. Uh, more random Giants t-shirts. I had a, a custom-made Kirk Reader for President shirt. I had a like a Marvin Bernard where the logo is stylized like the Coca-Cola logo. Just these <laughs> weird random shirts. And I never had the, the idea to get a Let Timmy Smoke shirt. I Because I honestly, I don't know if anyone actually watched that show. And by anyone, I mean the people who are actually running the, the network. I don't think they actually watched it because I never heard. Uh, I think I would have heard about that one. I think if I had worn a Let Timmy smoke shirt, I think there might have been some some notes for me after that one. But I don't know. It was worth it. It was worth a try. And I, I, I didn't even cross my mind. Dang it. But if you did wear the Let Timmy Smoke t-shirt and uh, nobody said anything to you, you could push the envelope a little more and wear the F Yeah t-shirt uh, the following, the following <laughs> day. I just pictured me on live TV as a producer scrambles to like do the, the, the pixelation on my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, right. that's a huge part of Lincecum's charm. And then there's the idea of it, it, he's doing things that you're just not seeing – Pitchers do, and I mean, by pitchers, I mean any pitcher. Pitchers who are close to seven feet tall, big, strong pitchers, you're not seeing the ball dive and dart and do all this stuff that, that it was doing out of Litzcombe's hand. It was just him as a pitcher. Once you forget about the persona, forget about the stature, forget about the funky delivery, it just once it left his hand. That was special. And to Giants fans, like, that was a huge part of it, too. It's like, what What are these pitches? What are you doing? How does this work? Yeah, and he'd face, like, an Adam Dunn or one of these big giant sluggers, and he'd, like, you know, dust him off on three pitches, and it would be like David slinging smooth stones. I mean, it was, it was like watching a guy who shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and what made him so great is... He had so much stride length. I remember watching him throw a bullpen after Randy Johnson threw a bullpen in 2009. They threw off the same mound in, in Scottsdale. And I was watching where their foot landed, and it landed in the same spot. One guy's 6'10", the other guy's 5'10", and their foot's landing in the <laughs> same spot. And and he was able to drive and get so much torque, and his arm was just whipping around, and it was there for the ride. And because 
because the arm was so fast and it was dragging behind his body and yet he could catch up because he was so athletic, um, that made it even tougher to, to, to try to pick up the ball out of his hand. And then, you know, when he would throw that split change off his fastball, he would just get so many swings and misses out of the zone. It was like he had no chance. And, uh, um, and the other thing that, that made him so, so good was um, if you ever noticed – he tilts his head a ton in his delivery, a ton. It's like almost sideways. And I once asked him, I'm like, how do you stay on target? How do you possibly like even keep an eye on the catcher's mitt? Because if he's right-handed, it's his left eye, right? That's 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 trained on, on the target. And most right-handers are right-eye dominant. And I remember my brother, he's an optometrist, and he said, you know, I'll bet you Lincecum is left-eye dominant. And that's why he can do that. And so he gave me a little test where you like cup your hands like about a foot in front of your eyes and you put an object in the distance and then you go, you look through one eye and the other and you can tell which, which eye you're dominant on him. So I did that with Linsicum. I said, you want to do a little experiment with me? And sure enough, left eye dominant. And that also wow. explains why he hit left-handed. Um, so that was just one of those little quirks that, that allowed him to do things and throw a baseball in a way that no one else could really throw it. I mean, you know, Chris Lincecum talks about how he borrowed from Bob Gibson, borrowed from Koufax, borrowed, you know, from all this other stuff and created this these perfect mechanics. Well, they're only perfect for Tim Lincecum because they're like point point zero 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 one percent of the human population could could do athletically what he needed to do to pull off that delivery. But it worked and and it, it wasn't gonna work forever. It wasn't gonna work for fifteen years. But the Giants knew that when they drafted him, and they knew the peak was going to be so irrepressibly, undeniably dominant that they said, we're going to go ahead and, and take this guy 10th overall. And they took Bumgarner, who was different. They took Buster, who they knew was going to have some uh, durability issues uh, as a catcher because he wasn't built like a Joey Bart. They knew the peak was going to be so good that they, they, they went all in on that, and they got three World Series titles to show for it. Yeah, and it's why you know you mentioned the stride and just how unique and, and and him landing in the same spot as a six foot ten guy. And what's weird about that is that's what did him in. Everyone was you know he's coming up, he's slight, his arm's not going to hold up. When's that elbow going to snap? When it wasn't the elbow that got him, it was the the hip. It was it was just doing that for X number of repetitions over X number of years. That's what got him. And you know, in some ways, it's it's a shame because uh, you wanted to see him pitching until he was forty. You wanted him to be the legacy giant who's who's still there today, uh, even if it had to be in the bullpen. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's one of those it's better to have loved and lost situations where I don't know if Tim Lincecum is is Tim Lincecum without that stride, without that hip. I mean, that's how he, it was necessary. He needed to sort of. Uh, flame out like that because that's the only way that package of DNA was going to throw baseballs like that. So it's like, hey, it happened, appreciate the heck out of it, and that's just how it had to be. Yeah, for uh, you don't see any Olympic gymnasts in their 30s. I mean, it's it's uh, things break down, hips, lower backs. He had a lot of lower back issues. And you know what? In, in talking to him, I think later in his career, there was a little bit of a wistful sense, uh, even now, 
that maybe he didn't get the most out of his career because he was a slacker. He was a guy who could show up and and you know not go no to, not go to class all all quarter and show up and ace the test because he was that good at his peak. And I think that he probably could have been a little better in 2011, 2012. Maybe could have won another Cy Young award. Uh, and and I got that sense too when I was talking to Jonathan Sanchez last year for the story I did on him. He knows that if he had applied himself a little more, he might have gotten a little more out of his ability. But I, I don't know, man. When you're a part of of that era of Giants baseball and you've got those rings and you've got those trophies, which are probably still in the trunk of his car, by the way, um, <laughs> I, I just don't know how you can have any regrets. I mean, you, you go into this clear-eyed, but whether you're an athlete or you're a fan, knowing that, you know, you're going to die twice. It's it's uh, That's what they always say. Great athletes die twice. And, um, you know, someone said this to me a long time ago, and I think it makes all the sense in the world. When you become a fan of an athlete, it's almost like you're you're uh, uh, bringing a puppy home or, or, or a cat or something. You know, you know, eventually it's going to be painful. You're going to have to say goodbye to, to, to something that you've really grown to love and become a part of your life. But you do it anyway because you know how much it enriches your life. So um, I, I just think that being able to experience Tim Lincecum is is going to be one of the highlights of my career no matter what happens from this point forward. Let's pause for a second and talk about theathletic.com, one of my favorite, favorite enterprises. Tournaments have been canceled. Leagues are suspended. There hasn't been a live game on TV in what feels like a year, even though it's barely been more than a week. There's no better reminder of how important sports are to our lives than to take them away completely. But The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there, and in these very strange, very uncertain times, they're still hard at work doing excellent reporting and telling unique, engaging, informative stories. Like how Major League Baseball can get creative, experiment, make the most of a delayed season. It's during times like this that The Athletic can help you keep connected to the teams the athletes, and the sports that you love. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash bagsandbrisby, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. Games aren't being played right now, but the stories that draw us all to sports, those don't go away. So go to theathletic.com slash bagsandbrisby for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. Just a, a little quiz here. See if you can remember. How many starts did he make in the minor leagues? Oh, man, it wasn't many. Um, wow, gosh. Uh, okay, Not, not including like, when he, he was like uh, rehabbing or, or with the Angels trying to get himself right, but actually in the minor leagues. Right. I, okay, I, th- I want to say there was maybe four for Fresno. Uh, the previous year for San Jose, oh man, I guess it was when he was drafted, so it couldn't have been more than. I'm gonna say maybe nine. Yeah, you know, you got you got to the right number, uh, just in a, a different way. It was 13 starts in the minor leagues. It was eight. Uh, let's see, two for Salem Kaiser. He struck out 10 of the 14 batters he faced, and the Giants said, "Whoa, okay, we'll move him up to San Jose." <laughs> he, made, he made six starts in San Jose. He struck out 48 of the 108 batters he faced. So the next year, the Giants said, all right, we'll start you in Fresno. He made five starts with a .29 ERA. Uh, He struck out 46 of the 114 batters he faced. He allowed 12 hits in 31 innings. I mean, 
it was it's so you have this anticipation that's building with him. You, you know, anytime you, you draft that high, you're thinking, wow, maybe this guy could be something. But there was a hit the ground running with Lincecum that just it, it prepared you. It prepared the, the fan watching like, you know, you just you couldn't wait to see this guy come up. It was uh, when I when he came up, when he was called up, I spent all night writing like a uh a take a, a, a version of was the night before Christmas. And I substituted, you know, twas the night before Lincecum and all through May's field. Not a creature was stirring, not even Lucille. And like, you know, I, I went through the whole stupid thing and it took forever. And it, I, I remember just grinning the whole time I was doing it because it was like Lincecum day, Lincecum day is tomorrow. Lincecum day is tomorrow. And that is part of the mystique because he hits the ground running and then he's up and he's fully formed and he's, you know, Tim freaking Litzikum, and he's going to win the Cy Young the next year. And then, you know what? He's going to win the Cy Young the year after that. And you didn't have to wait. You didn't have that painful period of, well, is this guy ever going to find his command? Is this ever going to work? You know, oh boy, he's he's really hitting a rough spot right now. It really wasn't like that. It was, here I am, and I am like a local god. Yep. And he never was a command pitcher, which is why he wasn't able to really sustain anything when, you know, he started to have the stuff erode a little bit because he was going to need to 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 sort of change and become that uh, that second Frank Tanana type uh, Tommy John career um, and and become a controller. And that was never really who he was. Uh, it was always the stuff is so undeniable and the stuff is so uh, dominant that that it didn't matter if he located uh, precisely or not. But I think one of the reasons they brought him up when they did is because of of you know what we mentioned earlier that the Giants knew that this guy was going to you know not necessarily have a career that lasted more than a decade in the big leagues, and it cost them. It cost them ten million in arbitration a couple years down yeah. the road. Uh, but they didn't care because they said you know. This guy's only here for a certain amount of time. He's a comet blazing across the sky. And as soon as he's ready, we're bringing him up. And they brought him up in 2007 when we know that that season was just basically window dressing to Barry Bonds and they weren't going to be competitive. But, you know, they just said this is a guy who's ready to dominate in the big leagues and and they weren't going to hide him or keep him down there. And I actually, I admire that. I admire the fact that they that they treated him that way. And and part of it, I think, was, you know, hey, if, if we can sort of shoot up his value, we could possibly trade him too. And they did entertain that. Uh, but when I, I will say, when I went uh, and tried to do a, re- a sort of retrospective of the Alex Rios, Tim Lincecum trade possibility, Brian Sabian just completely shot it down. And J.P. Ricciardi, who was the Blue Jays uh, GM, also shot it down. They both said, you know, we were never really close to making that deal. So uh, that one I, maybe was uh, got overblown a little bit. But, oh, man, it's still. Can you imagine if they had traded Tim Lincecum? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a big deal to me because I was, you know, my blogging in my sweatpants phase of my life. And that was one of the first times I got into a little bit of a, of a beef with a uh, an established writer. Uh, he was writing for a newspaper at the time, and, and he had a column um, about, yeah, I think the Giants should do this. And I rebutted the column, and I was, you know, respectful. Uh, but then this this actually established writer came back and, like, mentioned me in one of his, his columns. Like, no, 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 this guy, you're taking it out of context. And he was sort of, like, chewing me out in his column. And it was, Did like, really formative for me. Did he block you on Twitter? Me. Was there Twitter then? Did he, if there was Twitter, he would have blocked you. If I, I'm taking a guess as to who this person might be. It, well, I don't know whatever happened to him. It was, it was yeah, it was Tim Cavalcami. Ah. It was uh, 
Tim Kawakami, who is now my boss, um, but we, you know, I took it, I took it in, in in stride, and you know, we had some fun with it. I don't think we've ever talked about it since we've been working together. But no, it was because at the time, I just I was so adamantly against that trade. I was against them trading Kane. I just I thought the idea, the path forward was Kane and Lincecum, like build on this amazing young rotation while it's you know still a comet in the night sky, and worry about the rest later. You know, it's and. I'm not saying I was right, neener, 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 but it was that was the feeling at the time. That was the vibe that everyone was getting, um, was that this has a chance to be something very, very special. And that's why 2009 was so painful, because 2009 might have been the best pitching season the Giants have ever had and will ever have. Uh, they have, you know, they had a great bullpen. Well, not great bullpen, but they had a solid bullpen. They had Lincecum and Kane and Sanchez, and you know, they had a 120 team ERA plus, which I believe is is a team record. Um, that means they're 20 percent better than the league average after you adjust for Park. And you know what? They couldn't hit. They were awful. They had just a miserable time. They had Pablo Sandoval led the the team in OPS, and then the second place. Fred Lewis with a 738 OPS. Literally the second best starter on that team was Fred Lewis. The third was Aaron Rowan with a 738 OPS. I mean, it was I believe, yeah, phenomenal. Was ben- Benji was hitting clean up there. Anyway, keep talking. I'm sending Tim Kawakami a Slack message. You won't believe <laughs> what Brisby is saying about you on our podcast. That's okay. You know what? I've got... Uh, I've got... I think I think he he's come around to me. I think I've I've, I've removed the sweatpants. You know, I'm actually, oh god, no, I'm still wearing sweatpants. <laughs> we all are. Yeah, this shut is down. <laughs> I'm telling you, pajamas and athleisure are having their moment right now. <laughs> you know, and it is. Uh, yeah, no, it's it. All right, so Tim Litzicum, he had four seasons of brilliance, and that's it always surprises me. Like I know that. I know that it was short. I know that it was brief. It always stuns me that it was four seasons that of just pure brilliance, and then the struggle started. You know, when you pull up a list of career best career war on the Giants uh, throughout Giants history, Tim Lincecum is twenty first. He's between Freddie Fitzsimmons and Gary Lavelle. Like, and you look at that and you go, "Huh?" You know, he's behind Jason Schmidt. He's behind Jim Barr. Way behind Jim Barr. And you think, how how can that be? It. it it's remarkable just how much excitement he packed into those four seasons. Just a wild, tremendous amount of, I have to watch this. I have to see this guy pitch. And it was like 130 starts of this. And it was magnificent. It was one of the most condensed careers I've ever witnessed personally. I think that in addition to the Hall of Fame, there should be something. Uh, let's go ahead and call it the Hall of Awesome. And yeah. uh, and we can put Dwight Gooden in it. We can put Tim Linscombe in it. We can put Mark Fidrich in it. I mean, uh, uh, we could put, oh, that's a great one. Yeah. I mean, see, we're filling up the Hall of Awesome already. I think yeah. that the Hall of Awesome would be great. And you could uh, it could just be in its little building off to the side of the Hall of Fame. And, uh, and you could go visit and feel awesome when you look at some of these uh, careers. All right, now what is your favorite Tim Lincecum moment, if you have one? It doesn't have to be the one that you cover, but just the one that you watch. When you were watching it, you were thinking, holy shnikes, this is something. Oh, man, Um, there's so many. I don't know why I flash back to the playoffs. Well, first of all, we all kind of wondered what he would do when he had a playoff start, when it was all riding on him, because 
you know, when he would start the All-Star game, he admitted the nerves got to him and he did not pitch very well. And that was the All-Star game where he wasn't in the hospital. But um, uh, you always sort of wondered, what's he going to do in those big moments? Opening day, he had some opening day starts that didn't go super well and that bothered him. And then he gets that start, he gets that moment against the Atlanta Braves and he strikes out 14 and it was one of the most dominant pitching performances I've ever seen at a time when the team needed him most because that team just was not hitting. Uh, So that, I think, is probably his greatest achievement. Um, How he came out of the bullpen in 12 and reinvented himself at a time when he already was going through that crisis of confidence, that was, I think, remarkable, just how dominant he was. But if I go to one moment, I think back to he was pitching against the Phillies in the playoffs, and he had Jimmy Rollins at third base, and there was less than two outs, and I forget how he got out of the inning. It was probably strikeout, pop-out, or pop-out strike, or two strikeouts, something. And he's walking off the mat, and he resolutely points his finger toward third base, and he said, you stay right there. And then, and that one, I, that just sort of sticks in my mind as just a an image, a Tim Lincecum image that was like, you know, f yeah, Timmy, you you just went out and did it. So, um, I, I guess I'll go with that. That's awesome. I, and you know, we are coming up to to our half hour allotment of time, and so I I was scared that that we wouldn't have enough time to discuss this, but you touched on it, so you set the groundwork for mine, which is that start that start against the Braves. Uh, that was the best game I've ever seen in person. And that I, you know, I've I've been unfortunate in that I've never seen a no hitter. Uh, I've you know I was wasn't at a lot of the legendary uh, Giants games. I wasn't at the East Chicago game, but I was at that Tim Lincecum start against the Braves, and it's for exactly the reason that you said it was. The Giants are back in the postseason. They they have this championship drought. If they're ever going to win a championship, it's going to be because of this guy. This guy has to lead the way. He's got to pitch his brains out throughout the postseason. And but you're wondering, you're just thinking, can't you know, boy, what if his control gets froggy? What if, what if, what if? And the first batter of the game is Omar Infante. He gets him to a three-one count, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, he's gonna walk him. He's gonna walk him, and it's worse. It, Infante hits a double, and you're thinking, oh boy, here we go. Here's here's the the Charlie Brown, you know, the football getting pulled out from us. Why were we so dumb to think that this was gonna work? And the next batter, Jason Hayward, fly ball, and then strikeout to Derek Lee, strikeout to Brian McCann, both on 3-2 counts. So there's a chance that, you know, he might lose both of these hitters, and now you've got two runners on, one man out, and there's still a mess. And then after those two strikeouts, forget about it. He comes out in the top of the second. He throws 14 pitches. He had, what was the pitch he had working? I always thought it was, it was a slider. Is that, that was like his main weapon, or am I misremembering that? Yeah, no, I he, he sort of went in phases, and I think in, in that game it was the slider that was really yeah. dominant. And, I mean, that Braves team was decimated. They didn't have Chipper Jones. They just lost uh, Martin uh, Prado. Uh, there were just so many holes in that lineup. They had to play Brooks Conrad out of position. We know how that went. Um, the Their bats all looked slow. And, and I give Buster a lot of credit, too, because he's a rookie, and he's just reading swings, and he's noting what these hitters are doing. And, uh, you know, he, I thought he, he was, he just showed above and beyond, uh, that he was ready for that assignment. Just, I, I, there was a lot that Buster did against that Braves team. I think that, uh, 
uh, that led to the the pitching results that the Giants got uh, in that series because they they had to squeak through. I mean, every single game in that series. But but yeah, Lincecum was just really really good, and I think that he and Buster were probably as on the same page as they've ever been in that game. All right, so I will end with this because I didn't even realize this until now. Maybe I did, but I'd forgotten about it. But take a guess as to how many swinging strikes Lincecum got in that game. So he fa- he threw 119 pitches. How many strikes did he get due to a swing and a miss? Oh, wow. That's such a tough one. Um, gosh. Uh, oh, um, I'll say 24. 28, which Ooh, is absurd. Okay. All right. If, yeah, if that's a ton. If you're looking at a guy who... If you're looking at a guy who gets like 17 swings and misses in a game, you're thinking, holy cow, that is amazing. He was just missing bats all game. 28, 28 swings and misses. Yeah, I wonder how many of those pitches were uh, were out of the strike zone too. I'll bet you a lot of them were. Yeah, oh yeah, and just diving out of the dirt. And I, I mean, it's I'm awestruck, again, by Tim Litzikum, years after the fact, 10 years after the fact, I'm just, my, my mouth is open, because I didn't, I don't think I realized that. That's just, that's wild. Before we go, if I can just make one other small point, um, let's flash back 10 years uh, to opening day 2010, not exactly the same day, it was April 5th, so not quite the 10-year anniversary, but I, I would just like to remind everyone out there that the Giants threw out a lineup at Houston with Linscombe on the mound, who <laughs> threw seven shutout innings uh, and got the win. Brian Wilson got the save. Brandon Metters actually gave up two runs in uh, relief. But this was the Giants lineup that day. Aaron Rowan, center field. Edgar Renteria, shortstop. Pablo Sandoval, third base. And he was a bit hefty at the time. Aubrey Huff at first base. Mark DeRosa, left field. Benji Molina catching. John Bowker in right field. Juan Uribe at second base. That team, ladies and gentlemen, won the freaking World Series that year. How about that? Championship championship roster. Yep. Absolutely. That's amazing. You know, and that was like, there was the big, all spring was like, Bowker or Sheerholtz? Sheerholtz or Bowker? Like, that was the <laughs> big position battle. Yeah. And the answer not none of them. Like, you know, at some point... Both teams in Florida are going to just give away outfielders, and that's that's what's going to win the Giants a World Series. Is two teams in Florida saying, "I don't want this guy anymore," and the Giants swooping in and Jose Guillen getting uh, pinched by the Feds. I mean, <laughs> we could do a whole lot of butterfly effect for this stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and Brandon Metters got his World Series ring, and Todd Wellmeyer got a World Series. A lot of random people got a World Series ring that year. Giants legend. Todd Wellemeyer. Well, this has been the Todd Wellemeyer episode of the Bags and Brisbeat podcast, where we shared all of our memories of Todd Wellemeyer. Uh, no, this was the Tim Lidscombe podcast, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks so much for sharing all those, uh, you know, all your stories in, in the the article. Just a tremendous article. So so go ahead and, and look that up if you haven't read it. Um, but yeah, Tim Lidscombe, heck of a story to, to cover, heck of a player to watch. This has been episode 54 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next Monday.